You are listening to a sermon preached at the First Christian Church of St. Ignatius in St. Ignatius, Montana. For more information, you can visit us at www.firstchristiansti.org. We're going to miss Pat when he goes back to college. We get a little wound up some days. It's fun. And Nick, he's off to Fort Benton this weekend and preaching, hopefully, as well as he did here last week. That was the whole idea there. All right. So please turn to Revelation chapter 1. Oh, yeah. Be afraid. Be very afraid. <sighs> what? Oh, yeah. Leland's excited. I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of reading. Some of you know that. I think reading is very important uh, in a lot of ways to many areas of our lives. Reading gets us better acquainted with language. It increases our communication skills. Reading is a great way to acquire information. Through reading, we can experience things and go places that we'll never actually get to do ourselves. And, of course, we can also read for entertainment. But one thing I almost never do is read the end of the book before I get there. You know what I mean? Okay, now how many, how many of you like to read the end of the book before you finish it? Come on. Yeah? You like to do that? Philistines, I tell you what. No, just, just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. Now, there are two exceptions for me about not reading the end of the book before I get there. The first one is when the rest of the book, and I've been here a few times, the rest of the book is so boring or it drags on so badly that I know I'll never actually finish the book. So I give up on it, and I turn to the end to see how it turns out. It, that way, at least, I'll have a little closure for the time that I've invested in the book. But the other exception is when it comes to the Bible. Now, don't infer from that that uh, I have not read the rest of it. I have, but sometimes you're in the middle of one part, and you, you tend to jump around more in the Bible, right? When it comes to reading the Bible and reading the end of the book... We're not just reading the end of the story. We're reading the end of our story. Okay? And I say our story, among other things. The book of Revelation certainly gives us some ideas about what we have to look forward to in eternity. So yes, it's about us, but here's the thing we have to remember about Revelation. It's not all about us. In fact, it's not even mostly about us. The first five words of the book say it all, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And this morning we're going to do something I once thought I'd never do. We're going to start a study of the book of Revelation here in the sermon time. Now I have preached up through the first three chapters before. And of course we had the, uh, the great messages by Terry Stein at family camp and maybe many of you were there for that, but hopefully you don't remember all those so well that you'll go... That's not right when I get there, okay? Don't, don't do that. So, as we look at chapter 1 today, and it's going to be a little bit of a whirlwind, I'll just warn you in advance. Notice, though, that if you don't get anything else, as, as we go through Revelation chapter 1, notice how everything in it revolves around Jesus Christ. Just want to let this sink in for a minute before we, before we carry on here. Everything in Revelation chapter 1, and I think the entire book, revolves around Jesus Christ. And today we're going to look at five things. The message is his, the victory is his, 
The command is his, the glory is his, and the power is his. Let's read the first three verses here of Revelation chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads, and those who hear the words of the prophecy, and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near." very first point that we have here, the very first principle we have under the message of his is that Jesus is the one revealing. There's an interesting chain of communication given here in verse 1. God the Father, it says, gave Jesus, who is God the Son, this revelation to pass on to his bondservants. We'll get to them in a minute. The people we know as Christians. Jesus communicated at least part of this revelation It says, by his angel who told the Apostle John what to write. Why is that important? Because the message belongs to Jesus. God the Father authorized it, and Jesus never did anything, never taught anything that didn't come from God first. That's the way he operated when he was on earth, and I think that's the way he still operates. God the Father authorized it, but Jesus is the one who showed it to his disciples through the angel, and through John. And when we talk about those that are the bondservants, of course, we're included in that. Well, the next thing we see is that John gave testimony here. And in verse 2, it says that he testified. You you think about how you know that word, testified. Not a word that we hear much in our society, except in two places, in the church and in the courtroom. The only place you ever hear that, right? To testify means to bear witness at the same root word. Uh, interestingly, is the word that we get the word martyr from, is witness, and to bear witness. And this happens in court all the time. We're familiar with this. A witness is called to the stand to testify about things of which he or she has personal knowledge. That's what you want. You don't want somebody to go, well, could have been this way. I'm really not sure. I, you know, it's not who you call to testify. John says he gave testimony concerning three things. And the first thing to which John testified was the word of God. John claimed that God inspired him to write this letter, which is like claiming it to be equal to all other scripture. I mean, that that takes a little guts. I'm writing this letter to you, and I want you to know this is just like scripture because it is. God told me to tell you. But it happened. The book of Revelation is part of the inspired word of God. Secondly, John gave testimony to the, or excuse me, he bore witness to the testimony of Jesus Christ. You could paraphrase that to have John say, everything I heard from Jesus in this vision, in this context, everything I heard from Jesus, I wrote down in this book. Now, if you have a red letter edition, how many of you have a red letter edition Bible? Okay, okay, so as you look through the book of Revelation, you're going to see a lot of red letters. Jesus does a lot of talking in the book of Revelation. And John listened to what Jesus said, and he wrote it down in order to testify. These are the words I heard from Jesus himself. And then the third thing that John bore witness to, you know, as we, as we read through Revelation, we find a lot going on here that's almost purely visual. 
This is where I think we get messed up a little bit because we see John's vision as he recorded it the best way that he could with the words that he had to try to help us share this vision with him. And then we start saying, well, that kind of looks like this. And so we attach it to something. And well, that sort of looks like something else. And so we attach that to something. I think, we, I think that we go astray a little bit here. John had a vision in which he saw many things that were probably difficult to describe or to explain, but he did the best that he could. And it was sufficient. I mean, God inspired him to write this. In future chapters, we'll hear about pearly gates and streets of gold. And, and while those are word pictures that we can visualize in our minds, we may come to find out, and I fully expect to, we may come to find out that the reality of heaven exceeds John's ability to accurately describe it. You know what I mean by that? We're going to get there. We're going to say, man, he said golden streets. I had no idea it was going to be like this. I couldn't quite grasp it. John saw something, I think, that may have been very difficult to put in words. But the main point is that John was faithful in recording everything that he saw in the best way that he could and, and under the influence of the Holy Spirit inspired by him to communicate this to us. What about this book? We read here that this book is supposed to be a blessing. Now, it, it will be if we take it in the spirit in which it was given. I think where revelation starts to cause problems and we, when we start getting attached to a particular viewpoint and it conflicts with somebody else's particular viewpoint and we're sure it's this way and they're sure it's that way and we start to have division about that. That's never the way the scriptures were intended to be approached. Okay? But this book was intended to be a blessing. First of all, to those who read it. And you think, well, I'm reading it now. Yeah, you're reading it to yourself. But as this letter circulated among the late 1st century and early 2nd century churches, it would be the custom of them to gather everyone together, all, all in the congregation somehow, or maybe in, in groups at different times. They gathered people together, and then they would have a designated reader read the letter out loud because they couldn't have multiple copies. I mean, you, know, you and I each have however many copies of this that we want practically in the United States today, but they didn't have that. They just had the original. Maybe they would make a copy and send it to somebody else, but they'd get everybody together. They'd have a designated reader read the letter out loud. And I don't know about you, I tend to process information better and more completely if I'm the one doing the reading as opposed to having to listen in order to pick up the information. I shouldn't tell you that because you're all listening, but I hope you're reading it yourself as we go along. That's why it's so important. John says that the person who reads this letter will be blessed. Well, he also says that the rest of the people will get the contents of the letter via the public reading that we mentioned here just a minute ago. John says that those who listen to it will also be blessed. When they didn't have their own copy, and they didn't have all the distractions that we have, and so they could sit there, and someone would read it, and the people would listen. It was a, it was a blessing when it was read. It was a blessing when it was heard, but only under one circumstance. Both the reader of the word and the one who listened to the word being read had one other qualification needed in order to receive the blessing. It says that they needed to heed the words that they were reading or that they were listening to. In other words, they needed to pay attention to these words. They needed to remember these words and they needed to apply these words. Remember, remember whose words they are. This isn't John sitting down to make something up. These are the words of Jesus. And in that 
circumstance, in this message, there's a sense of urgency. In verse 1, John says that these things must soon take place. Verse 3 says that the time is near. Now, I am convinced that the first purpose of this letter was to help Christians in the first and second centuries deal with the amazing amount of persecution that was coming. Oh, sure, there is application for us today. Some of what is written in the book involves the time when Jesus will return, but I think the first application was for those Christians in those churches at that time. Let's go on to verse 4. Talk about Jesus' victory. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, the original recipients here, the, those to whom this letter is addressed, the seven churches there of Asia Minor, we, do, we don't really know why those seven churches, they're not the only churches of that time in that place, we don't really know why those seven churches in Asia Minor were singled out as the recipients of this letter. Now, we'll get into this a little bit later when we start looking at the, the different churches. They were in close proximity to one another, relatively speaking, 50 miles or, or so. That would make sharing the letter from one church to the next easier because John wrote it out once and he mailed it off and the first church gets it and they read it and then they send it on to the next church and that's how that worked. And perhaps the issues that those seven churches faced were representative of the issues that all the churches of that day or maybe even of our day face. Whatever the case, the Christians in those seven churches were the original intended recipients. And I think this becomes important to us later as we decide how we want to try to interpret the book. Let me just say one word about that, too. Uh, there, like, as I implied earlier, there's probably not been any other scripture that has generated as much controversy and perhaps even division as the book of Revelation. I don't think that's God's intent at all. And so when we, when we have that, and it's, I mean by well-meaning people, I don't mean that there's somebody with an agenda and they're trying to mess everybody else up, when that kind of thing happens, it tells us something about the nature of the information that we're looking at. It is difficult in some respects to understand. There are different ways of looking at it. And if we get to be too dogmatic about it to the point where we, it becomes divisive, I think we've crossed the line. I don't, don't want to go there. Not, I don't want to let this, God's word should never be a barrier between you and me. And so we'll talk about these things as we go on. Okay. He says here, uh, grace and peace, first of all, from God the Father. In verses 4 through 6, it seems as though, and there's some debate about this too, but it seems as though John mentions all three persons of God. In verse 4, John writes, from him who is and who was and is, who is to come. And of course, that could refer to Jesus, 
But Jesus is mentioned by name as a separate person in verse 5. So I believe, I think it's pretty well uh, a consensus, that this refers to God the Father. Grace and peace from God the Father. And then the next thing he says is, talks about the seven spirits. Now, this is one of those phrases that gets people wound up and they start looking at a bunch of different things. We're not entirely sure, I'll just say that right now, but it seems reasonable to me that when he refers to the seven spirits who are before God's throne, I think that's a reference to the Holy Spirit, perhaps referring to the various aspects of the Holy Spirit's mission. Could I be wrong about that? Absolutely. So I'm not going to say that as you know dogma or anything, but just, that's one possibility and one that I would tend to agree with. But then he says, and from Jesus Christ. Now, the, the things that are mentioned here about Jesus Christ, there's a bunch of descriptions. First, he calls him the faithful witness. And in here, there's no question about whom John is speaking. He mentions Jesus by name. He describes him as the faithful witness. And when you think about Jesus' life, that fits his perfectly. Jesus spoke only what the Father told him to speak. And he spoke all of what the Father told him to speak. John called him the firstborn of the dead. Paul uses this terminology in Colossians 1.18. And that statement sets Jesus apart from all others who have ever been resurrected. You know, if you look at the scriptures and you start examining all Old Testament, New Testament, there were at least nine specific individuals in the Bible who died and then were resurrected, if you include Jesus in that list plus the many who rose and came out of their tombs following Jesus' own resurrection. The thing that sets Jesus' resurrection apart from all the others, though, is that he rose from the dead and never died again. Lazarus, Jairus' daughter, Eutychus, all the rest, they died, they were raised from the dead, and then they died again. Jesus is the first to die, to rise from the dead, and never die again. So he's described as the firstborn of the dead. John also describes him as the ruler of the kings of the earth. And you think about first century Christians in Asia Minor and what they would think about that in contrast to the Roman emperors who saw themselves as being the ultimate authority and, and who allowed and even demanded that people worship them, treat them like gods, Jesus is a higher authority than any earthly king. John calls him him who loves us, again in contrast to the Roman emperors who so often abused and exploited the people under their rule. Jesus demonstrated his greater power and authority in love. John says, him who released us from our sins by his blood. That love that this ultimate authority possesses and expresses to us. His love motivated him to die on our behalf so our sins could be forgiven. Him who made us to be a kingdom of priests to God, John says, even beyond forgiveness of our sin, Jesus made it possible for us to become what Peter calls a royal priesthood, serving God in his house today, the church, not the building, but the people, the body of Christ. Glory and dominion are forever his. Now think about that statement. Jesus has won the ultimate victory, and he will reign over all people forever. At some point, everybody's going to acknowledge that. 
Most of you here have already. But at some point, everyone will. At his coming, every eye will behold him. You think about what that means. There have been some groups over time that have proposed the idea that Jesus will somehow return secretly only to be seen by a select few. The Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, they taught for 83 years that Jesus returned invisibly in 1914. For 50 years before that, they taught that Jesus had returned invisibly in 1874, but then they decided they were wrong. Since 2013, they have retracted both of those claims, stating that Jesus' return is still to come. And I do believe they're getting closer to the truth in that regard. But the idea that there will be a return of Jesus Christ, even one in the future, in which only some people will perceive him, is clearly false. Every eye will behold him. And it says all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. When he returns, the realization will come to far too many, far too late, that there is no longer an opportunity to enter into a saving relationship with Jesus. They will have lost their final opportunity to repent and be saved. At the close of this section of this first chapter, It talks about the Lord God. Verse 8 is spoken by God the Father. Though these words could just as easily have come from Jesus Christ. Indeed, all the designations of verse 8 will be used to describe Jesus in other verses. But the first thing he says here is, he says, I'm the Alpha and Omega. Now, most of you probably know, Alpha and Omega are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. For God to refer to himself as the Alpha and the Omega means that he is the one who establishes the beginning and the end of time. There was a beginning of time referenced in Genesis 1-1 when God began his work of creation. And there will be an ending of time when Jesus Christ returns and we enter eternity. And God the Father is the one who establishes those parameters. He says he is the one who is and who was and who is to come. God existed before time began. God exists now. He will continue to exist forever. And in all that, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And finally, he gives himself the designation as the Almighty. Verse 8 is God's testimony concerning the truth about Jesus given in verses 5 through 7. Who he is the Lord God Almighty, the ultimate authority, says that what John wrote about Jesus is true. And so the victory, the victory truly belongs to him. Go on to verse 9. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet, saying, Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And John introduces himself here, and and he describes discipleship in the way that he introduces himself. First he talks about, I am your brother, Hebrews 13.1, 1 Corinthians 1.10 are just two places where the expression brothers and sisters is used to describe the relationship of Christians to each other. 
We're in this together. John placed himself in that same category, not exalting himself to some higher level as though he's you know, outside of our experience or, or uh, uh, relationship. The second thing he says is that part of what we share as Christians is the suffering that has been granted to us for Christ's sake. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer, says 2 Timothy 3.12. And John says he shares in that tribulation, uses that word there. He talks about kingdom, as he describes what being a disciple of Jesus is like. Those who are followers of Jesus belong to the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God, which we understand to be a reference to the church. And finally, he talks about perseverance. You know, we are called, we are even commanded to persevere in following Christ no matter what our circumstances are. He says he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Now, this is the only place in the New Testament that uses the expression, the Lord's day. And we understand it to mean Sunday, the first day of the week, on which it was the custom of the early Christians to meet and participate in proclaiming the apostles' teaching. They would participate in fellowship, the Lord's Supper, and prayer together in a group like we do. Paul also wrote to the Corinthians to set aside a portion of their income on the first day of the week to be used to help Christians who were in need. So the Christians in that first century set aside that first day of the week. And John says, on the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit. I think he refers to the vision that came to him, not because he you know, somehow sought this out or, or did something to cause this to happen, but because it was being given to him by Jesus. He said he heard a voice like a trumpet as part of the vision. Now, I don't know what, that, what he meant by that exactly. He might have meant that it was loud. He might have meant that it was attention-getting. He might have meant that it was piercing, but I really don't know. See, I used to play trumpet about three-fourths of my lifetime ago. When I played trumpet, it was all those things. It was loud, it was attention-getting, and it was piercing. Notice I didn't say it was good. But John heard a voice like a trumpet. And then he got the command. And the first part of the command was, write what you see. There's two, two commands here. The voice was that of Jesus. John received two commands. First, write what you see. And see, I don't even know that John understood the significance of everything that he wrote in the book of Revelation. He seems to be confused at several points, like Daniel was in, in his uh, vision that he experienced. But the main thing is, John was obedient in writing it down. He obeyed the command that Jesus gave. And the second command that Jesus gave John was to take what he'd written and send it to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now we'll be talking about those churches in the coming weeks. But the point is, it was Jesus' command to John to write these things down and send them to the seven churches. Go on to verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to his feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it had been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. 
In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. Now try to visualize what John is seeing as he writes this. I've tried, and I looked for, uh, actually took quite a while looking for uh, an image that lived up to John's description. And I found a couple that had some good elements to them. Neither uh, is entirely accurate, in my opinion. This would be the first one. Now, I like this one because of the way it depicts the sword coming out of Jesus' mouth. Yeah, good, you can see that. Okay. It depicts the, the sword coming out of Jesus' mouth, right? And um, something that uh, you don't see in all depictions, he's holding the seven stars here, but he's also got these keys right here, which I like because we're about to read in the next section uh, down in verse uh, 18. The keys of death and Hades are his. Now, I don't really care for the depiction of the lampstands here. might be accurate. I don't know. I just don't much care for it. But it's, it's, uh, it's kind of... It's not in color. It's a, an etching or an engraving or something. I do like the uh, radiance of his face. I do like that. Okay. Um, but there's a lot that John describes here that I think is lost in that picture. Now, we've got this one, on the other hand. This one's in color. You get a better idea of the radiance of Jesus' face because you're able to see you know, how it shines more than, uh, than the other one was just sort of a, a, an impression of rays coming out. But there's no sword coming out of his mouth. Um, there, Jesus doesn't seem nearly as terrifying as I think he was when John first saw him. I think this appearance, John knew Jesus. John had seen Jesus and knew him before the crucifixion and before Jesus was buried in the tomb. He knew Jesus after the resurrection. He was there the day Jesus ascended into heaven and he saw him go up. And now Jesus shows up and I think John's terrified. I think it's a scary thing, right? So I, I don't... I still have yet to find a good one. There's probably a much better one out there. I just haven't run across it yet. But no picture, I think, is really going to do Jesus justice. John's description is all we have to go by. It says he was garbed like a priest. Well, it doesn't say that right out loud. Okay, It says he had a robe that came down to his feet and a gold sash uh, across his chest. And I think your imagination is probably going to serve you better than these artists' conceptions. As you try to visualize Jesus, as John describes him, let's look at a few of the outstanding elements and, and think what they might possibly mean. The long robe and the golden sash are highly suggestive of priestly attire. And, of course, the book of Hebrews portrays Jesus as our great high priest who ascended into heaven. And then the description of Jesus' hair as white like wool or snow. Not by virtue of age, Okay, but by virtue of wisdom, and this reminds us reminds us maybe of Daniel's description of the one he called the Ancient of Days. Again, not to imply because he's old, but because he's eternal. White hair used to symbolize wisdom, possibly pointing to omniscience, the quality of Jesus as God that allows him to know everything. And then it says he had eyes like a flame of fire. And that perhaps suggests the consuming nature of Jesus' sight. He sees everything. The divine quality that allows him to do that is his omnipresence. He's everywhere, so he sees everything. And then he's got feet like burnished bronze. In Psalm 110, verse 1, David writes about God the Father speaking to God the Son. 
when he says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The word picture illustrates the triumph of the Messiah over his enemies. He is more powerful than they are. In fact, he has all power, which is the quality of God that we call omnipotence. And then we have the sharp double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. Hebrews 4.12 says, The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The sword coming out of Jesus' mouth, I think, represents his word as truth as well as showing that Jesus has the authority to judge the nations by his word. And then possibly my favorite part of this of this whole imagery here, is that his face was like the sun shining in its strength. You remember in Exodus, Moses goes up on Sinai to meet with God. And he's up there for a while, 40 days, 40 nights, right? And people think he's dead, so they start doing some other things. But when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, his face glowed so brightly that he had to wear a veil over his face so that people could stand to look at him. It was too bright otherwise. And That wasn't even the full radiance of the glory of God. As John saw Jesus in this vision, Jesus displayed the full glory of God, something that John could only describe as like the sun shining in its strength. What does everybody tell you about the sun, right? Don't look at it. I don't think it's that we don't look at Jesus. I think it's that we can't when he's in his full radiant glory. And that's just it. The glory is his. This whole thing is about Jesus. Let's finish the chapter here. Last four verses. Verse 17. And I think that that radiance probably explains what happens here in verse 17. When I saw him, John says about Jesus, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And we'll spend the next few weeks talking about the seven churches. And, and verse 19 implies what the rest of the content of this letter will be. The things which you have seen, the things which are now, and the things which will take place after these things. Well, let's think about the power that Jesus possesses. He possesses resurrection power. You know, there was a first century group called the Gnostics, which is kind of ironic because the name implies that they knew stuff when they didn't really know, okay? But they denied that Jesus was fully human. Well, he couldn't really be fully human. Jesus himself declares to John here, I was dead. Now, that requires humanity on his part and affirms his humanity. And then Jesus follows that with, and behold, I am alive. The resurrection of Jesus is one of the fundamental and essential doctrines of Christianity, but it is also a tremendous demonstration of his power. He has the power of the resurrection. 
not only did Jesus rise from the dead, it says that he, now he is alive forevermore. He has eternal power. Remember what we said about Jesus being the firstborn from the dead. He died, he rose from the dead, and he'll never die again. He has fulfilled in himself the promise of eternal life that he offers to you and me. And he has power over death, not just his own death. His power over death extends beyond himself. He has the power over death for us too. John 11, 25 through the first part of 26. Uh, Rick mentioned this morning that we had a funeral here yesterday for Ruby Hamilton. And uh, part of the passage that I read when we were at the cemetery there at the graveside was from John 11, verses 25 and 26. Jesus is speaking to Lazarus' sister Martha. Lazarus is still in the tomb. Been there for four days. And, And Jesus is speaking to Martha. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Jesus has the power over death, not just for himself, but for you and for me. And finally, it says that he has the power over Hades. That's what those keys are about. Keys mean, mean well, they mean responsibility in our world, but in Jesus' uh, world, it meant power and authority. The word Hades seems to have two meanings as it's used in the scriptures. On one hand, Hades is the grave or the abode of the dead, which means that all who die enter Hades. It's it's the next place where we go. But the more specific meaning of Hades is the place where the spirits go of those who are not saved by the power of Christ's blood as they await the final judgment and eternity in hell. Jesus has power over Hades in two ways. First, he's the one who determines who enters Hades and who doesn't. But secondly, Jesus has provided a means of avoiding Hades for all who will accept him as Savior and Lord on his terms. Revelation can seem like a confusing book. It can seem like a scary book. But I think if we'll keep in mind that the focus of the entire book is on Jesus, I think we'll find it easier to study and to understand, at least as much as we can and as much as we need to. We said the message is his. The entire book was given to John by Jesus, at least partially through an angel, all under God's authority. As we study the book of Revelations, please keep in mind that this is Jesus speaking to the churches, to the Christians of first century Asia Minor, and to us today. We said the victory is his. Here's the part where reading the end of the book makes sense. When all is said and done, the message of the book of Revelation is Christ wins. There's a lot of different opinions about some of the details concerning that victory, but the universally accepted message... I think in Christianity, of Revelation, is that Christ wins. And because Christ wins, all those who are in Christ, when he returns, win also. We said the command is his. The Apostle John didn't wake up some random Sunday morning and say, you know, I had a dream, I better write that down and send it out to the churches in Asia Minor. Jesus gave the vision to John. Jesus commanded John to write it down. And Jesus commanded John to send this letter to the churches. You and I are subject to the commands of Jesus as well, which means we really need to find out what those commands are 
and then obey them. We said the glory is his. You know, back around Christmas time, we read John chapter 1, verse 14, which described Jesus in this way. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. When Christ returns, you and I will see his glory, fully unveiled, radiant like the sun. And we will worship him, whether we ever did in this life or not. Finally, we said the power is his. Jesus has proven that he has the power of the resurrection. We may die, but if we die as those who are in Christ, he will raise us up on the last day. His power is eternal. So no matter how long it is until he returns, his promises will always be true. He has the power over death, especially over the spiritual death that separates us from God because of our sin. And Jesus has power over Hades. By his shed blood on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, he has given us the ability to escape an eternity of torment and misery and to enter into everlasting life instead. Are you ready today for Jesus' return? Will you be in Christ when he comes back so that his victory will be your victory? Have you acknowledged Jesus as Lord, accepting him as your Savior, repenting of your sin, confessing your faith in him to others, and being baptized into him for the forgiveness of your sin? If you haven't, the question I would have for you, would be, why not? Jesus, I'm fully persuaded, Jesus could come back today. And I want everyone here to be ready when he does return. If you have a decision to make for Christ today, please come forward as we stand and sing our